Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Today we're continuing our interview with Laurie Verbridge, author of The Brockport Murder Dog Trial, Bizarre Tragedy and Spectacle on the Erie Canal, published by Arcadia Publishing. No, I still can't quite believe it, but honestly, that's half the fun. Laurie, welcome back to Crime Capsule. Thank you so much for joining us this week and to continue this incredible saga of your family's adventures with canine law. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. Where we left off, you had described for us the overwhelming amount of emotion that surrounded this particular trial in Brockport. And yet one element that is really remarkable to consider, even with the the benefit of hindsight, is the fact that you had a film crew show up to capture nearly everything that was about to happen. And not just any film crew, a Paramount film crew. And the expense associated with this must have been enormous, but they really came in and tried to understand what was happening. And you couldn't have written your book without this film, could you? No, that certainly was the topping on the cake. Uh, when Bill's son was able to procure that, and then he's an editor, so he was able to edit um, edit the films because it was in such bad shape when he got it. He had to edit all of it, and it was an amazing thing. Uh, I was so excited to see my father as he was going through this, to see the emotion in that courtroom is an amazing experience, especially for um, his family members. Um, To hear Mrs. Breeze, her voice, uh, and the pain, it it was, it, it supported everything I'd always heard, but it made it real. Bill always was amazed at the young people that were interviewed talking about the dog. He thought that they captured the sentiment that should have been there, which was, even if Idaho did it, he was just a puppy. He didn't mean it. (laughs) And there were comments of that nature on there. But the pain was real for both sides. Whether you were on the side of Maxwell Breeze's family who had lost a child or whether you were on the side of the family who believed their dog was innocent, Idaho's family. It is remarkable because this film, you have incredible stills from the film in your book. I mean, just the the images that you were able to sort of lift with permission, of course, um, really bring bring it to life for for modern day readers. But um, it, it from a research perspective, this film was critical because you didn't have the court transcript. You actually had the proceedings captured on acetate <laughs> uh, that you could work from. <laughs> well, it, it's it's not the entire trial. There were a couple of comments. One was my dad, um, and then there were pictures of the courtroom itself. So you actually had a flavor of what you thought you saw when you were imagining it. And then um, it, it showed third bridge on the Erie canal. And then it had youngsters speaking. And then it had the judge 
when he sentenced the dog. So those conversations and seeing all of the people that are involved in it, I, I can't remember if Mary, it seems like Mary Fawbister was on there and um, was talking about the dog and uh, that he was not a dangerous dog. Right. She had continued to serve in her sort of advocacy role um, over, uh, over those weeks. Now, outline for us the strategy of the defense and then the strategy of the prosecution. Harry was going to get that dog off. <laughs> <laughs> that was his mission. All right. And he had a mission and he was going to take that all the way. And he did research beyond research in order to accomplish his mission. And for the local, I mean, he had an alibi dog. That was the second dog that was involved. And his name was Rex. And Rex lived around the corner from our family. And Rex actually attended the trial. And nobody said it wasn't Rex. So, and... uh, Mr. Snoves, Snover, Snoves, he was the one that identified him and had played with the dog and said Idaho was innocent on stand. And so you have that on there on the Paramount film also. Right. There's this interesting wrinkle uh, for listeners who didn't catch our first uh, segment. You write in the book that the Judge Benedict could have ended the trial simply by taking the recommendation of a veterinarian on the record and saying this dog is not a vicious animal. The dog that is accused of this, this uh, these attacks, so to speak, is not a vicious animal. And that would have been enough under New York state law in order to exonerate the dog or acquit the dog. But there, what's interesting is that there's actually a burden of proof which is it's not a jury trial. The burden of proof is is really on the defense to prove that Idaho was not vicious, and all, that's the only bar they have to clear under the law. They, they, there's just nothing else. And so, so Harry's Harry's strategy here really is to uh, induce some reasonable doubt into the into the judge. I mean, it's not, it's really not to anybody else and not into the court of public opinion. He just has to convince Judge Benedict this dog is, is not, you know, an attacker, so to speak. Yes. What, one of the questions that Harry had answered that he took from Mr. Terhune, who was a dog activist, I guess, specialist um, uh, at the time, and he wrote several books, um, Mr. Terhune said it would be a a dog could not be malicious or could not have a preconceived uh, idea to murder someone. He would not have had time to think about it. If the dog, the dog could not have claws like a cat, he would have paw prints, but he would not leave scratches. And Maxwell didn't have scratches on his body. And that was part of the evidence that he was able to get from that expert. So he had experts that he had relied on for part of his defense. He would have had the prior to fall back on. And I believe the dog would have been put down. I think Harry Sessions knew exactly what he was doing. Even as Sessions is introducing reasonable doubt into Judge Benedict. There's 
still another legal wrinkle here, isn't there? Which is that the question of whether the Breeze drowning was even admissible with respect to the Hamlin charges, that question is wide open. I mean, you write that because officially, based on the summons, that your father was being brought in on charges of possibly harboring a vicious animal uh, with respect to the two attacks, you know, that Hamlin had 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 sort of um, described. It is an open question under the law whether the dog had any priors and whether those priors could possibly be even established or or referenced here. And yet nobody seemed to pick up on that fact, not even the judge. <laughs> No, that's absolutely true. The um, First of all, Maxwell Breeze should have come into it at that point. This should have been about the attack on Paul Hamlin. And there was very little talked about as far as Paul Hamlin went. It was yeah. all about Maxwell Breeze. And it wasn't a murder trial. It was a trial on the vicious dog. And it was... Not really a trial. It was a summons. But as soon as Paul Hamlin made the allegations, Maxwell Breeze was brought up and it became through the media a murder trial and sensational headlines. And that's and it took on a life of its own. And it just makes me wonder how things would have played out differently had Sessions stuck to the strictest sort of line regarding what his client was being brought in for and and not played to the crowd, not had all these elements of sort of showmanship and the 30 witnesses. And the, I mean, it's just, how, how would this story have been different? I think it would have been very different. I think that they would have, if Sessions had defended against Paul Hamlin. You know, we have had a number of cases over uh, the last several months in which a legal defense has basically been organized for somebody accused of, of murder, say. Um, a legal defense has been organized around the Saudi principle. I'm sure you've heard of the Saudi defense, which is some other dude did it. Yeah. It occurred to me as I was reading your book, Laurie, you know, the D, um, the middle D in Saudi could also be rendered for some other dog, dog. did it, right? <laughs> for the alibi <laughs> The dog. Saudi defense works for dogs. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very convenient, these yeah. things. Um, so the the prosecution then, I mean, the, as you write, the prosecution was it wasn't exactly sort of ramshackle. It was just that the the lines uh, were a little less clear. That it was the constable who was sort of acting as part of the prosecution uh, le- legally. That sort of in that in that region or under state law, that sort of he had the authority to bring the charges. And there was no DA, so to speak. <laughs> yes. And it doesn't tell much of what the response from the constable was in any of the uh, newspaper articles or that sort of thing. So it almost looked like it was a one-way defense. It didn't really seem to be balanced. But they did have some people that said, yes, that was the dog. But they had as many that said he would never do it or it wasn't him. Tell, tell us about the witnesses. Who who were the witnesses that were called to the stand? Um, my grandfather was on the stand. My dad, 
um, Mr. Snow's. There were um, my uncle Norm was on there. Uncle Jack. Uncle Jack was thirteen, and I hadn't really thought about his age um, when I was younger writing this until I was writing it again with Bill. And his age of a thirteen-year-old boy put a different perspective on his outlook of all of this too. And then there, there were like 30 witnesses. Um, the veterinarian that they hired um, came in and he had observed the dog for two weeks. Um, and then of course, Mary Favister uh, testified that he was not a dangerous dog. My grandfather's uh, testimony was based on the um, fact that he had been home all day and that his fur wasn't wet and that and those questions were asked by the defense. If I were a prosecuting attorney and I were cross-examining your grandfather, I might ask, you know, were there any moments at which, you know, you and the dog were not in the same room or you were not together that the dog could have slipped away from your front porch and gone down to the canal where it was possible to swim on a hot summer's day and the dog, you know, had known this canal because he'd been swimming there before, sort of to introduce, right, an element of reasonable doubt there to say, well, all right, Grandpa, you know, um, <laughs> are you sure <laughs> that the dog was not uh, able to just get away for a few minutes, you know, like how, how certain can you be? I mean, it seems it seems plausible that the grandfather's not sitting on his porch for 12 straight hours in a day, right? Yes. Um, and it's possible that it was a swinging door back then because you didn't have anything that automatically shut. On the same token, my cousin has been very adamant, and she knew him best because she's about 10 years older than I am, that he would never lie. And he, he wouldn't even split a hair on the truth. So he really believed that dog was in the house all day long. Could he have? No, and I'm not. A... No, but could he have? I, I think he could have. Who knows? We, uh, yeah. we are, we're in 1936. It's the summertime. Maybe he wants to go in and get a cold drink from the ice box because that's he, what we used it, back in 1936. It only takes yeah. five minutes. It doesn't take that long. All you got to do is go in the door. <laughs> Dog is off, right? <laughs> yes. Come to the come to the scratches because the scratches are kind of an interesting piece of potential evidence. You had uh, the account from the coroner that said there were no scratches on Max's back where you would have expected to see them, and yet there was a reporter who went swimming with Idaho later in order to sort of test this theory who I think did come away with a couple scratches. Is that is that not correct? Yeah, but the scratches were um, would not be the same as a cat claw. That was what they were saying. Um, Maxwell didn't have any, breeze, any bruises or scratches because it's believed his swimming skills were so poor that he probably uh, panicked and subsequently went under before the dog would have really scratched him. Um, whereas the swimmer swam quite a while with the dog, but yes, the dog, Idaho got right on his back. And my dad talked about the dog swimming and getting on his back. But my father was a strong swimmer. Idaho or Maxwell Breeze would not have been. Um, it was very clear that his swimming skills were poor. Right. 
No, and that's an important distinction to make. Um, so, so in the closing statements at trial, you have this kind of interesting contrast to what maybe you would have expected to see. The prosecution turns around and, and basically says, don't kill the dog. <laughs> uh, then you have <laughs> Harry Sessions turning around and saying, this dog isn't worth $5. Right. Therefore, don't kill the dog. And I was really struck by this kind of, you know, what what are they what are they playing at here? Because if Sessions is going to sort of falsely demean his own client by saying that, you know, the dog isn't worth execution, is is that what kind of roundabout logic is that for <laughs> for exoneration here? I just I couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around that. Well, when he, he went on to say, though, that it was man's best friend in his summary, he, he actually says... Yeah, if you want to read the passage for us, that would be great. Yeah. My client, Your Honor, is only a mongrel dog who isn't worth $5. But people get attached to a dog in some way. I don't for a minute contend the dog's life matches a boy's. I have the most respect for the feelings of the parents in this case, and I want no one to misunderstand my point of view. But dogs are dogs. You wouldn't grow up without a dog, just an ordinary pup dog. And I haven't heard a soul in the courtroom recommend that the dog be killed because if this dog is dangerous, then every dog of the same age and breed ought to be killed. The best friend in this world that a man has may turn against him, but the one absolutely unselfish friend that a man can have in this selfish world is his dog. You know, it kind of gives you a glow around the heart. And Benedict, he actually goes on and he says, I know just how you feel. I have a dog myself, blurted out Justice Benedict. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, dear. I think something like that might be called into the appeal, uh, you know, <laughs> in this day and age. But I do too. at the time, uh, yeah. Good Lord. Good Lord. Uh, so, so what happens? I mean, the trial does not last very long, even though there are that many witnesses. It's over in really a very short amount of time. Five hours. Dad, my dad always said that was the five hours, the longest five hours of his life. And the courtroom was extremely crowded with over 500 people in there. And flashbulbs going off. And he, he said it was just um, it was a circus, but it was for that many people. It was a quiet circus. But he he said you would hear him say, "Oh," or they would, you know, yeah. I mean, and he said it was a very difficult day. You did write that there was something else which was unexpected in the proceedings, which is that the trial of one dog became actually a trial in which there were five dogs, kind of present or invoked or referred to who who were these other four dogs apart from idaho well there was a rex who was the alibi dog and the alibi dog um w looked just about like idaho so it could have been a misidentification and then kentucky boy comes in and he gives a donation to the dog and 
talks about how he saved a lot of lives and he was recognized. I think it was Chicago, but I'm not positive. Um, And then there was another dog named Patsy, who was also a famous dog for having, um, and he wrote a letter in support of Idaho. And then the other dog, which uh, he was in Idaho and he was, (laughs) they tried Someone tried to say that the dog belonged to them and it was taken from Idaho. But the allegation was um, the dog was nine years old and this one was all just around nine, nine months old. So it was instantly cured, but they had to pursue it and make sure that it wasn't. Um, my father couldn't get over the fact that somebody would try to claim the dog as theirs. But when, yeah. I do like how we can very naturally and breezily say that Patsy, the dog out in Chicago or wherever, wrote a letter on behalf of Idaho yeah. and Brockport, New York. And and it's just fine, you know, like we just yeah. get it. It's okay. <laughs> it is pretty funny. I mean, there, as I said earlier in my uh, book, I can laugh about it now, but I can tell you my grandparents didn't laugh about much of any of this. And But there are some hysterical things that happen. I mean, what's the chance that Taft's, um, President Taft's guard would, guard, bodyguard. bodyguard would guard <laughs> Idaho? I mean, that's just bizarre. There were so many things like that. <laughs> yeah. No, it really, it's, it really is almost... Almost too good to be true. Um, now, at the verdict, five hours, your father's longest five hours of his life, um, what did Judge Benedict ultimately rule? He actually ruled that the dog was dangerous in the water. Um, that um, based on information that he had, I think I've got the ruling right here. Yeah, please. We'd love to hear it. After considering the evidence in this case, I've decided that the actions of the dog Idaho while in the water are dangerous and that said subject, Victor Fortune, is hereby ordered to securely confine said dog from this date until October 1st, 1938. And if said dog is not securely confined, any police officer or designated representative of the Commission of Farms and markets is hereby ordered to kill said dog either on or off the premises. And there's a picture of him signing the uh, judgment. How does that judgment stand in comparison to the other trials, the long history of animal trials that you and Bill uh, discuss in the book? I'm thinking of the medieval pigs and the mosquitoes and the goats and so forth. Those those usually ended a little differently, didn't they? Yeah, they usually ended up where the dog or the animal was killed. And um, I think that had it not been for Harry Sessions and Mary Fobister, this probably would have happened to Idaho. I, I think that the community would have demanded it. It certainly wasn't a vicious dog so um but it was a tragic situation
3 a.m. The comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. It did strike me as I was reading, Laurie, you know, this sounded like a very good application or illustration is maybe the better way to put it, of jurisprudence. Not taking one extreme or the other, but trying to find that kind of middle path. Uh, Yeah, and uh, I I read uh, at one point in your account, you write that the there's a common outcome in cases like this where uh, dogs that have been deemed to be uh, volatile in certain contexts, rather than put the dog down, they are often just removed from the context or given right. new lives elsewhere. And that often, it doesn't solve necessarily the problem, so to speak, but it it sort of threads the needle of of approaches and giving them the second chance or um, if they're not, I don't think you would do that with a dangerous dog, but it was clearly evident that this dog was not dangerous. He was just a puppy, an enthusiastic puppy. And um, could he have done it? I, I think sessions did a good job of finding the middle ground for everyone in the community um, there were people afterwards that still felt that way, and they worried about the dog being in danger and actually took him out of town. Mary took him right after the trial to Canandaigua for a couple of weeks to let things calm down. And uh, that was probably a good idea. The dog did ride home, however, in the police car with the sirens going, and my father said, <laughs> so- <laughs> I swear, he just gets almost the royal treatment, doesn't he? He did. (laughs) Good heavens. Let's talk about aftermaths, because aftermaths are important to this particular story. Um, And there are quite a lot of them. I mean, we have your family. We have the Breeze family. We have Idaho himself. Um, let's Let's start with your family. After this verdict was rendered... Uh, your father did have to keep Idaho restrained for the next several years. What did they have to live with after this trial was over? My grandparents were, my grandmother was chastised for quite a while. It got to the point where people would walk on the opposite side of the street with that if they saw her. At church, there were things she didn't even want to go to church for a while. Over time, it got better, but it took a long time for that to happen. For Idaho, his life was changed forever, too, because he was used to being able to go to the Brockport Canal and swim, and he could no longer do that. Um, You can't take a dog swimming on a leash. 
So if dad was going to take them, he would have to take them out of the county to do that, to swim. Um, he was tied. He no longer went hunting with my uncle or anything like that. And so for two and a half years, or, well, just just a little over two years, he uh, was tied every day. And my grandma would bring him in the house with her during the day, too. I mean, he wasn't just on the chain because she wasn't that kind of a person. And so he spent a lot of time with her. It really struck me, your your father's moral compass with respect to what had happened and the way in which, I mean, they you write that they really had to spend a lot of money on legal bills and, you know, sort of just consultants and, you know, they're just, they were out of pocket badly. And during the depression, during the midst of the great depression, and yet, and yet given the offer from Paramount to kind of turn the dog into a celebrity show dog and pay him all this money and that sort of thing. Your dad actually took a very different line, didn't he? Yes, he did. He could not bring himself to make money off of the tragedy of Maxwell Breeze's death. And so he did a little bit of it to pay the bills. And when I say a little bit of it, it was pretty much around Rochester, Buffalo area. He, he would take the dog on stage, talk about him, have Idaho do a few tricks, and then he would get paid because he wanted to pay Harry Sessions. Um, he made a and he made enough money to donate uh, to the Humane Society. He he clearly never made a penny. At one point, for legal defense, they were selling his paw, doggy paw prints for a hundred dollars a set, and they actually sold like four sets of them. And he says, "I wow. wish I had those now." He says, but I didn't have the hundred bucks to get them. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> and he, he said that that was kind of a, at that time, a hundred bucks was a ton of money. Absolutely. So, yeah. When he was in the CCCs, he was making $25 a week to send home and $5 a week for himself. So a hundred dollars to him was very dear. So, but he, um, he had offers from Paramount. He had offers from several places and he turned them down because he could not. And Harry brought him into the office and said, look, you know, you've got some opportunities here. And my dad was very clear. I cannot make any money off of this. I, I want just the money to pay my bills and then I'm done. And that's what he did. That really is remarkable. I mean, that's just such a um, good gesture and what a noble, noble heart your dad had. Uh, tell us about the breezes, though. What what happened to the breezes after this? That they were, his mom never recovered, really. She was very sad. The dad continued to work. Um, Mrs. Breeze, Anna Breeze, passed away. It was less than two years after he died. And uh, her heart was literally broken, is what I'm told. Um, Mr. Breeze moved out of Brockport. Uh, He remarried. And I'm not sure after that where he ended up, but I know he passed away in 1959. I I think it was 59. And uh, I remember my dad feeling very sad about that but I didn't know what it was 
because I didn't know about this at that time. So, um, but I do remember him. I remember my grandmother telling him at the, um, at, at, when we visited her that he had passed away. And my dad just saying, oh, it was a friend of mine. But I didn't connect it for years later. And Idaho himself had kind of a sad ending to his life, didn't he? This this was a twist that I didn't, I did not expect seeing this coming in in the last pages of your book. I really sort of was, I had to read it twice, Laurie. I, I was sort of, I, I read it and I thought, no, 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 surely that's not the case. And then I read it again and I realized exactly what you were saying. And it was, um, it was really, really moving. Um. Yeah, I, Idaho was actually released um, from his uh, confinement a month early or six weeks early, something like that. Um, uh, Barry Faubister continued to try to get him released um, so that he didn't have to be chained all the time. And um, my father would not unchain him during that period. He said he was given this, he was going to serve it. And um, that's, he was just grateful to have him. Um, So my, my dad, of course, by this time was working full time. So Idaho's life was a little different there too, because he couldn't go to work with dad anymore or anything. And so that's when he would stay with my grandmother. My, when he was released from the chain, my dad said, you need to Uncle Jack, who was at the time 13, um, you need to keep him on a leash, or might, maybe by this time he was 15. Um, you need to keep him on the leash. You need, he, he can't be just let go because he doesn't know anything about cars or anything. He may run away or that sort of thing. And prior to that time, Uncle Jack had been taking him and trying to train him to hunt with him again because he had started that training before uh, Idaho's confinement started. Um, uh, Uncle Jack took him out hunting, and uh, he decided that he had trained him enough, and being a kid, let the dog off the, the leash. Idaho saw a rabbit or a cat, and I mean a cat, and started chasing the cat through the woods, Cat ran across the road, and the dog followed, and he was hit by a car. At first, they thought maybe the dog that the dog had been hit on purpose, but my father maintained that it was just one of those accidents. He was pretty heartbroken over it, and he was pretty upset with my uncle for a lot of years. Um, but it was it was awful, and my grandmother had to go and get Uncle Jack, and she was called. And um, they buried him in the backyard where he had been staked. And it was uh, awful. Yeah, my father would tear up when he talked about it for many years. Yeah, what struck me was that just like the events which brought Idaho into the annals of legal history, you know, with the events that made Idaho yeah. famous, it was all over just like that. It happened in a flash. In a flash. In a flash. 
Laurie, I have one last question for you. And here at Crime Capsule, we we try to dig deep. We try to uh, really spend as much time as possible with the complexity of the material that is given to us through um, through this research and research like it. We like to ask the questions that really try to just get right to the core of the matter. We like to do the very best we can to to bring the essence of the matter to the fore, okay? From your vantage point, as a researcher, with the benefit of hindsight, with all the available evidence before you and before your colleague, uh, Bill, triangulating your understanding against one another's understanding, declaring your personal bias, uh, and with the two of you applying every verifiable method to this case, I have to ask you, was Idaho a good boy or was he the very, very best boy? <laughs> he was the very best boy. <laughs> <laughs> my father, my father adored him. My grandmother really adored him. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was the best boy. I thought for sure you were going to ask me, do you think he was guilty or not? <laughs> I'm, well, that uh, is irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> My father, uh, just before he died, he and I had a conversation about this. Because he said to me, I know you're going to write it someday. Right. <laughs> I, said, I said to him, I'm going to ask you a hard question, Dad. Do you think Idaho did it? Did you ever once think he did it? And he said, I always believed my parents to be telling me the truth. I didn't think he would ever do it on purpose. Do I think that he could have gotten out the back door? It's possible but he would never have done it on purpose. He was not a vicious dog. He didn't deserve to die. It was a tragic accident. And I thought that summed it up just about right. He was a good boy. He's, he looks like a good boy. I mean, in the photographs that you reproduce in, in your book from the film, yeah. he just looks like such a champion. Yeah. He, I've got a picture of him that Mary Faubister had done of sleeping with a rabbit. And <laughs> my grandmother had a pet r rabbit. I think his name was Petey Boy. And <laughs> he, <laughs> the picture shows him sleeping with the dog. And uh, we didn't get that in the book, but it, w it didn't seem to fit a bizarre murder trial. <laughs> but there were a lot of things like that. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a pleasure. This was a pleasure for me too. And thank you for letting me share the story. I'd like to pay a special tribute to Bill Hallfish because without Bill, the book wouldn't have come to fruition, especially as a historical a document. He was, he was unmerciful about dates, everything. And I would come up with him and he'd say, you had this? I'd go, yeah, I have it. <laughs> But it would take me some time sometimes because I had a, a mass of information. But his creativity, his knowledge, skill, and ability actually brought about the document. 
I couldn't have done it without him. And it was an honor and a privilege to work with him. Well, the two of you together, he in spirit and you in person, have been a total joy. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, as always, for listening. Our guest has been Laurie Verbridge, author of The Brockport Murder Dog Trial, Bizarre Tragedy and Spectacle on the Erie Canal, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Join us next time for an interview with Denise Parkinson, who will be kicking off our new series on women in notable crime cases. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To find out more about Crime Capsule and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.